Welcome to the Wellsteading Podcast. This is episode 241. Today is July 26, 2017. I'm your host, John Pugliano. I'm also the founder and money manager of investablewealth.com. In today's episode, I want to talk about interest rates, and we'll get into a little bit about why I think that is a major issue that we face and has been for the you know previous three years or so. But more importantly, I want to drill down and I want to talk about the concept of regression to the mean. And this applies not only to interest rates, but to any type of financial product or instrument that you may be plotting or, or charting or following along with. So we'll be discussing interest rates in particular. We'll be discussing things like regression to the mean. And this is going to be at a real high level. Trust me, I know you're probably driving in your car, you're listening to audio, and you don't want to get down into the weeds with mathematical formulas. That's not going to happen in this episode. Before we get started, I do want to mention a couple items. The first item is, as I'm a little curious and I want to pull the audience, sometime last week, someone must have posted or made reference to a blog post that I put out oh, about over a year ago, a year and a half ago. That blog post was entitled, It's All About Earnings, and it's just a real quick blurb, like most of my blog posts are, where I put up a chart, and in that particular case, and I showed you the relationship between the S&P 500 and corporate earnings. Well, here's my question on this. I noticed some additional traffic hitting that blog site. I know I didn't talk about it, so I'm curious who did. And the reason I'm asking is, is that usually when someone references my material, they send me an email where they somehow notify me and say, hey, I talked about you on my blog, or I mentioned you on my podcast, or I you know, put something you did and shared it on my Twitter account or, or wherever. In this particular case, I didn't hear from anybody. So I'm just curious who sent the traffic my way. I was going to thank them. So if you happen to be listening and you know who linked my blog post from January of 2016 entitled, It's All About Earnings, please let me know. And then also, I did want to mention that last week I was down in Las Vegas. I was at Freedom Fest. I did a book signing for my new book, The Robots Are Coming. Wanted to give a shout out to those of you that I met down there. And I also wanted to mention that today's episode, although we're talking about regression to the mean and specifically we're talking about interest rates, we are also talking about something that was specifically covered in that book, and that's because not only is it entitled The Robots Are Coming, but it's also called A Human Survival Guide to Profiting in the Age of Automation. And fully half of that book is about investing. It's about saving. It's about investing. The last two sections of that book are specifically about being a saver, not a consumer, and being an investor, not a speculator. Now, something I talk about in Chapter 14, which is all about bonds, and I, I talk about long-term interest rates. And I'm bringing this up in this episode, and this gets right into today's topic of will interest rates regress to their mean? And I, I bring this up because several of you are, are pretty sharp, and you caught that in the book I mentioned, I don't think that long-term interest rates are necessarily going to get above 4%. And yet you also know that particularly over the past three years, I've been very concerned about rising interest rates when the Federal Reserve and other central banks either formally stop their quantitative easing program or stop their overall intervention into the bond and equity markets, whether they you know claim they've already stopped their formal program or not. Our country is a case in point. We officially stopped quantitative easing in October or November of 2014. But at the same time, we have not retired that debt. So the $4.5 trillion that's on the Federal Reserve's balance sheet, whenever that comes due, rather than just retiring the debt, they roll it over into new debt instruments. 
So every month, maybe somewhere in the neighborhood of $20 billion is being reinvested back into government bonds or into some type of mortgage debt. $20 billion is a big number. I've seen it uh, speculated that perhaps as much as 20 or 25% of the overall government debt every month is still being purchased by the Federal Reserve. And so officially, yes, they've ended quantitative easing, but they haven't retired that debt. I've been on record as saying, I don't think they're ever going to retire it. I wouldn't be at all surprised that some of the long-term debt, not the things that come due in, say, two years or five years, but some of the debt that they may have purchased that was rolled out to 20 or 30 years, if that just never gets paid and gets forgiven, it wouldn't surprise me. But in any case, why do I talk about being concerned about rising interest rates, but at the same time in my book, I said that I don't think that long-term interest rates are going to get much above 4%. And when I'm talking long-term interest rates, I specifically mean 10-year U.S. Treasuries. Well, what we need to remember is, is that rising interest rates is a relative term. And while 4% may not seem like a very high interest rate to you, particularly if you're older and you remember back in the 80s when we had 15% interest rates, or even back just a decade or so ago when 6% interest rates were pretty common, you may be thinking that, well, 4% isn't very much. But just recently, interest rates on the 10-year Treasury have finally gotten back up to about 2.3%. They were well below 2.25% for quite a while now. And when we look back a year ago to when the Brexit occurred, I think they got down to an all-time low of something like 1.7%. And that's even with all the talk of the inflation trade that may be coming on because Trump is president and the fact that the Federal Reserve has raised interest rates about three times in the last you know 12 months or so. Despite all that, interest rates today are only about 2.3%. And when we look just four years ago, the end of 2013, interest rates back then were at 3%. We briefly hit 3% on the 10-year Treasury around December of 2013. That's after the stock market had had an amazing year. It rallied up about 30%. And the Federal Reserve was talking about normalizing interest rates, but they never did. Interest rates were near zero. They were holding their Fed funds rate at about 0.25%. That's 25 basis points. And they held it there for another three years, practically. And even when they started raising rates, where are we at? We're actually significantly below 3%. We're only 2.3%. I keep hammering at that number. You say, well, John, why are you worried about rising interest rates if interest rates are going to tap out or peak out at 4%? That's not very much. Well, it is when you look at it on a percentage basis. 4% from where we are today at 2.3% is well over a 70% difference. And when you're talking about long durations, 10 years, 15 years, 20, 30 years, you can see a significant decrease in the principle of your investment and the principle of the bonds that you own when interest rates go up that much. So it doesn't seem like a lot, you know, hey, 2%, 4% doesn't seem like a lot. But it is on a percentage basis. And so will it hurt short-term rates? You know, will it hurt the three-month treasury or maybe the two-year treasury? Well, probably not so much. But it could have a major impact on long bonds, and that's whether they're government bonds or corporate bonds. And so that's why over the past three years, I've been very hesitant to put my money into any type of bond or bond fund, and I've preferred to keep it ultra-safe and not bearing any interest in a money market account. What I'm talking about there is the cash that I haven't allocated to an equity position. So if I'm not buying a stock or an ETF with it, I'm parking my money in a money market account. 
Now, will I keep doing that? Not necessarily. If rates do move up, particularly if they get up above 3%, you may see me start parking my money in some type of short or ultra-short government bond fund. But we're still a long way from 3% in the 10-year Treasury, so I'm holding off on that for now. Well, here's also a point I want to make about a 10-year Treasury yielding 4%. And this is the reason I put it in the book to begin with. You see, because in the book, the robots are coming. It's a survival guide. The first half of the book, I talked to you about the importance of working on your human skills, your creativity, and setting yourself up as an entrepreneur. Because I do think over the coming years, and I don't know whether that's over the next five years or the next 25 years, that we are going to see a significant amount of job loss to robots and artificial intelligence, and it's not going to hit at the low end. We've already seen blue-collar working jobs and manual labor type jobs automated already. I think this next attack on employment is going to hit people at the professional and the white-collar level. And while that's bad news if you're employed as, say, a middle manager somewhere, it's great news if you have an entrepreneurial spirit because the same factors of artificial intelligence and robotics that are going to result in unemployment are also going to be the factors that are going to reduce the barriers to entry in many fields. And so while you may not be considered a valuable employee anymore, it's very likely that you can take your skills and turn that into some type of an entrepreneurial company that you run yourself. So that's what the first half of the book is about. But that second half of the book looks at the way we save and invest. And my premise is that if artificial intelligence and robotics are changing things like corporate structures and employments and pensions and the whole employee-employer relationship, it is also going to significantly impact the way we save and invest. And I think a lot of paradigms are going to shift. For example, you know I'm not a big proponent of buy and hold, but I think that's going to be even less viable in the future because there's going to be so much rotation between the winners and losers because the same logic applies with companies as it does to employees. While many employees will be made redundant because robotics can do their job for them, many legacy companies will also become irrelevant and made redundant because the services they provide have been replaced by artificial intelligence or robotics or something like that. And so while you can say, hey, that company's been around for 100 years and they're very stable, well, maybe not so much in the future. And rather than just looking at stocks, I also look at things like real estate, precious metals, government bonds, things that as a saver we've come to depend on because these things oftentimes, even if they don't gain in real terms, they preserve value in inflation-adjusted terms. So for example, gold. Gold doesn't always produce a capital gain, but generally, over time, it keeps up well above inflation, as does oftentimes real estate. I talk about each of these areas in the book, though, and say, will advances in technology change those old relationships? Maybe land in the future won't be worth as much as it has been in the past. The same thing with gold. And I won't get into it all now, but you would say, well, how can precious metals be affected by technology? Well, look at the price of oil. Four years ago, oil was averaging over $100 a barrel. Because of new technology in the form of fracking and horizontal drilling, the price of oil has plunged and it is now consistently below $50 a barrel. The whole supply chain has only seen a 2% increase in the amount of available oil. 2% excess oil has resulted in the price of oil being cut by more than 50% extrapolate that out and understand how that can affect other commodities and things even like precious metals. 
Who knows, when it comes to precious metals, we may in the future be mining gold or silver or platinum from meteors or, you know, somehow getting them from space. We have no idea how technology is going to change things. Or for that matter, whether people are even going to want to use them. Look at the impact that cryptocurrencies, and specifically things like Bitcoin, have had on the price of gold and silver over the last two years. How many people do you know today are investing in cryptocurrencies that five years ago were die-hard owners of gold and silver? And while maybe they haven't sold their old holdings of gold and silver, they're not really buying more because they're taking that extra discretionary money that they have and they're putting it into cryptocurrency. Now, I'm not saying whether that's a good or a bad thing. I'm just saying that that's what's taking place. And when less people want gold or silver, you get a disruption in the balance between supply and demand, and the price will go down. Just like the price of oil got cut more than in half because there was a 2% greater supply of oil than there was in demand. So those are things you have to think about in terms of technology and robotics and automation. That's why I wrote the book. And in particular, when we're dealing with interest rates, the point I make in the book is about where long-term interest rates should actually be. You've heard me talk many times on this podcast that the 10-year treasury, in general, should be about equal to nominal GDP growth. Nominal gross domestic product growth would be how much our country produces goods and services in inflation dollars. So they're not inflation adjusted. Usually on the news or financial information, when they talk about GDP growth, they're almost always talking about real GDP growth, meaning that they factor inflation out of it. To get to nominal GDP growth, you have to factor in inflation. So if the country produces 2% more in real terms, and then if the value of the money was devalued by 2%, that means that the nominal GDP growth was 4%. 2% real, 2% inflation, you get a nominal 4% growth rate. And that nominal understanding of GDP is important because generally, as a rule of thumb, that's where 10-year treasury yields tend to hover, somewhere around that nominal growth rate. And if you think about it, it makes sense. When you loan someone money over the long term, you're going to want to get a return on that money that not only keeps up with inflation, but also keeps up with growth in GDP. Because if you can invest it at a similar risk level somewhere else in the economy that's growing faster, then that's where you'd want to put your money. And so when the overall economy is growing at a 2% rate, you're going to want to try and get at least 2% for your money. If it's only growing at half a percent, then you're willing to take less. So that's why the growth in nominal GDP is so important to understanding long-term treasury yields. I bring all this up, and again, it's in the book, and you've heard me talk about it many times here in the podcast, but something that I maybe haven't made a big emphasis in in the podcast where I specifically put it in writing in, in the book is that I don't think that yields are necessarily going to get much above 4%, and that's on the 10-year treasury. So in effect, what I'm saying is that I do think we're going to get higher interest rates, and I think they're going to regress to the mean of about 4%. Now, regression to the mean is a very important concept. You're rarely going to see something like a stock price or a long-term interest rate stay at only one value. You're going to look at a stock. Sometimes it's going to be $100. Sometimes it's going to be $98. Sometimes it'll peak up and hit $130, and then there'll be a pullback and it'll drop down to $87, right? It's constantly moving up and down. That's why we time the market. And one of the factors we look at to understand if our stock price is appreciating or depreciating 
is the mean value. You know, since the price is always fluctuating, you want to look at the average over a period of time. You often hear me talk about it. You've seen it in my YouTube videos where I talk about simple moving averages. That's a case where we're just taking the average, we're taking the mean, and we're plotting it on a chart over time. I think that is one of the most effective ways to determine whether your assets are appreciating or depreciating. Now, there's certainly more complicated ways you can do it, but that is really one of the most simplest and I think the most elegant way, and it's what I tend to use the majority of the time. And in effect, what you're saying by using that type of a tracking mechanism is, is that you're putting a big emphasis on what the mean price is, what the average price is of that stock or that interest rate that you're tracking. So you're really not looking at the day-to-day -day variation in it. You're looking at the mean, at the average. And so oftentimes we talk about regression to the mean, meaning that if a stock gets oversold, the price gets too low, and eventually it's going to come back up to its average price. On the other hand, if there's irrational exuberance, the stock gets priced too high, it's overvalued, but at some point it regresses back down to its average price. So regression to the mean is a very important concept to understand. But here's the million dollar question. Whenever we talk about regression to the mean, what mean are we talking about? Is that the average price over the last 10 days, the last 20 days, the last 50 days, the last 7 years? So it's not simply a matter of regression to the mean, it's really regression to the right time frame. Now this is an important concept and we're not going to get down in the weeds on it today as to how it relates to stocks, but let's talk about how it relates to interest rates. And the important thing that I want to point out, and this is particularly if you're around my age, I'm 56 years old, you can remember back in the late 70s and early 80s when interest rates were well into the double digits. You could go out and buy a house and your mortgage could easily be a 12 or 13 or a 14% interest rate. Now, for anybody that's had a mortgage in recent years, that seems insane, but that's the way it was. When I purchased my first house in 1991, I got what I felt was an outstanding interest rate and it was 9%. Now that seems crazy today, but a lot of people have those high double digit interest rates in their mind and even if they don't go double digit, they're certainly thinking about something above 6 or 7 or 8%. And so when we talk about rising interest rates and inflation, that's what people are concerned about. They're concerned the interest rates are going to go above, you know, 6% or maybe above 10%. While I think that is possible in the future, I think if it did occur, it would only happen over a very short period of time. You know, I think you could maybe see a spike up in interest rates, but then they would come back down because I believe that a lot of what's going to happen in the future because of robotics, because of automation, because of artificial intelligence, we're going to see a deflationary cycle come in as opposed to an inflationary cycle. Again, this is a concept that I cover in the book. I talk about a tug of war. Yes, our government and all the governments are devaluating their currency. That creates inflation. But at the same time, technology is making things cheaper. Think about consumer electronics. Think about smartphones. Think about the price of computers, how all those things keep coming down and getting lower. You get a higher performing computer at a lower price every year. I believe that deflationary pressure is going to happen across all sectors of the economy, thus driving down prices. And the corollary to that is that it will also drive down the yield on money and on investments. And so while it's true that if you go back from the mid-1960s through the year 2000, 
So for approximately a 35-year period, we saw very high interest rates. But I personally think that was an anomaly. It had to do with what was happening in the, in the post-World War II era. It had to do with what was happening with overall Western economies and to the extent that they were building up social programs and welfare states. It had to do with the convergence of technology where we were sort of seeing an end to the old mechanical industrial revolution, but at the same time we were seeing the information age and the computer age starting to come in. It was also an area, when you get back to World War II, the post-World War II era, that we had that massive increase in the baby boom coming into adulthood. This is factors and demographics that not only impacted the United States, but it affected every country in the world. That 35-year period was a unique anomaly in the history of the world. And as a result of that, I believe we saw significantly higher interest rates than at any other time in history. If you go back to the period from 1875 and you go all the way up to 1965, so a period of 90 years, 1875 to 1965, that 90-year period, and you look at the yield on the U.S. 10-year Treasury, you're going to see that that yield is fairly consistent from around a low of 2% to a high of around 4%. Now, certainly, as with any financial figure, it does fluctuate. And there were periods when it did spike up higher than 4%. Notably, as I recall, right around World War I, there was a big spike in U.S. interest rates. And so those anomalies will occur. But in general, that 90-year period from 1875 to 1965 saw fairly stable, range-bound 10-year Treasury interest rates from around 2% to 4%. Now, I would argue that when we talk about an interest rate mean, that mean is more likely to be around 4% than it is at some of the higher numbers that we've seen over the last 30, 35 years. So when you think about mean interest rates, you may be thinking that, hey, they're going to go up again. They're going to get up around 6%, 9%, 12%. Yes, it could happen. But again, I think because of the deflationary pressures of technology, specifically artificial intelligence, robotics, and automation, that we're more likely to go back to those pre-1965 long-term treasury interest rates, which are more likely to have a mean somewhere at or below 4%. There you have it. That's my thoughts on where long-term interest rates are headed. I'm using that in my formulas as I project my future investments. And so I'd encourage you to think about interest rates as to not what's happened over just the last 35 years, but maybe what's happened over the last 150 years. Hey, that's just my opinion. That's the way I see the world. Take it for what it's worth. And as always, until the next episode, this is John Pugliano wishing you the very best returns. Suddenly interest rates have risen, buybacks have petered out. Passive investing in the S&P is in doubt. CEOs do all the talking, analysts fudge their views. Suddenly the rally's over, well steady and soft.